to what's next. We are finishing that up today. We've been following the lives of Saul and David in 1 Samuel and kind of uh, taking a peek at their lives and how they dealt with huge life changes and what was happening next. How do they prepare themselves for what's next? What did that look like for them? How do they make decisions that were going to help them in that? And at the beginning of the year, we all are faced with the same question, what's going to happen next? Maybe it's uh, the dread of, what is the tax man going to say I owe the government? What is this going to look like? What is my new job going to look like? What is, as my kids get older, maybe they're getting ready to go off to college, or they're getting ready to enter into high school, or like mine are headed to elementary school for the first time next year. Those whole what's next type stuff, those are big questions. Maybe we're retiring. What's next for me in the retirement how do, how do we ask these questions? How do we get through that? How do we get the best out of what's next in our lives? Because some of us, if we look, we see what's next coming, and we're like, you know what? That doesn't look very appetizing, right? I mean, we, we, we have those moments in life as well. I know what's coming. Oh, I see a train coming, right? I see it coming. What's going to happen? Is it going to hit me? Is it going to pull me over? Or am I going to be able to capitalize on this, this locomotive? What's next? The thought I want to kind of center on today is this. Our attitude is the number one factor in how what's next turns out. We can leave that up right there for a long, long. Our attitude is, our, is the number one factor in how what's next turns out. Our attitude. Not our neighbor's attitude. Not our boss's attitude. Not our wife's attitude. Not our husband's attitude. Those, those have value, they have influence. But our personal attitude is the number one factor in what and how what's next turns out. And until we own that, I don't know we can adequately be prepared for what's next. I was thinking this week, the lottery last night, I don't know if anybody won, but it was $380 million. All right. Everybody's like, oh, Jared, I got to go. We got to buy a ticket. Right? It's 380 million. What if I told you, hey, you won, Craig, you won the $380 million jackpot. (laughs) You won. You won. What does that look like for us? Some of you are daydreaming right now. You're like, hallelujah. I'm buying a Ferrari. Right? That would not be safe right now. Uh, That would be exciting. Wee, wee. It'd be like skiing on the road. (laughs) But I'm buying a Ferrari. That was your your first reaction. It was like, oh, I'm buying a boat. I'm buying such and such. Whatever. Somebody else's reaction was, oh, student loans are paid off. Thank you, Jesus. Right? But, you know, I don't have to. My mortgage is gone. Oh, that's beautiful. Or some of you are like, I'm going to Jamaica. Jesse Bergen was like, I just got back. I'm going. I'm out of here, people. Right? Uh, so we, we, we have those reactions. And others of us probably reacted, oh, my relatives are going to just eat me alive. Right? That was your first reaction. Oh, taxes. 380 million, I only get 160, oh, uh, or whatever it is, I don't know. Uh, I'm only, only getting that. Oh. So you, you either had one of those three reactions on it. And that, that's just interesting. Think about it, it's $380 million. If your reaction is anything but like, you got something wrong with you, okay? You got something wrong. If that's not your reaction, we need to work on our attitude. Okay, we need to work on our, our negativity, our pessimism. 
If your first reaction was, oh, my relatives are going to fleece me. You got enough. You can just, here's a million dollars. Never talk to me again. It's okay. You got, you got enough. It's okay. Um, That's just the way it goes. But we all have these attitude issues. And for what's next, if our attitude's bad, even if I give you $380 million, you're still going to be cranky pants. Think about it this way. This attitudinal problem with people who win uh, win the lottery is real. 70% of people who win the lottery go bankrupt, Jimmy, bankrupt in seven years. 70% 70 in seven years. That's stupid. That's an attitudinal problem. That's a, I won the $180 million, you just, everywhere you go, apparently. I don't know what you're wasting. You have to try hard. Like, if you've done what Kelly and I, we, we, we did the poor thing. We did it well. And we just dreamed of what it would be like to have $1,000. Mm. And the promised land comes, and we have $1,000 in the bank. You know, some of you are right there right now. I understand. We, we were there. But uh, it, it's that, that time. Thinking about $380 million, I'm like, Kevin and I were dreaming this week. What would it be like? We got about 10 spent. And we're like, uh... Uh, <laughs> we had nothing else to go with. We had nothing else to spend money on. We had nothing else to, to do. We we're like, oh, 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 okay. I mean, we paid for everybody's mortgage. We paid, so we just started paying. How do we get rid of this thing, stuff? It was intense, but 70% of people are bankrupt within seven years. Can you imagine? Ouch. Attitude is the number one factor in what's, and how what's next turns out. Our attitude about our circumstances is to determine the outcomes. It's just another way of saying it, a few bigger words. Our attitude about our circumstances determine the outcomes. I want to focus in on this attitude because David, he's going through about the toughest time an individual can go through. A pretty, pretty difficult time in his life. And his attitude and through these trials and through, through these circumstances is an example of how we can attack and deal with the people in our life, ourselves in our life, and, and the circumstances in our lives, and how attitudinally, I don't know if that's a word, I'm pretty sure it's not, but it's fun to say anyway, uh, how we can work our attitude to maximize uh, our potential in these situations. David is a great example for this. The story goes, this is one of the most fun stories in the scripture. David gets all the good ones, mom. I I know why you taught him every week in Sunday school. It was because David gets the good ones, all right? This one's a little crass, but it's still, uh, I'll just go ahead and warn you, it's going to have potty talk today, and that's just because it's in the Bible, all right? You can't get mad at me. I'm just doing a story in the Bible. I'm not going to read it for you. I'm going to just kind of tell the story, but it can be found in 1 Samuel 24 if you would like to uh, fact check me, okay? Uh, so what happens is David has been running away from Saul. He's been doing his own military mercenary campaigns throughout Israel and kind of helping people out. He basically has coalesced this group of 500 to 1,000 elite fighting men. They have nothing else to do except run away from Saul and train and fight. That, this is their, their livelihood. This is what they do. So when you do that day in, day out, they're becoming basically the rangers. Okay? And they are uh, just a lean, mean fighting machine. Very, very, very effective at what they do. And so Saul has recognized that these guys, this 500 people, have become a very viable military option. And he goes, ooh, I can't just chase down David and kill him anymore. I have to contend with these 
you know, rangers if I go after him. And so Saul doesn't have a standing army. Israel does not have this, you know, standing army of 100,000 men that go to war all the time. What happens is you basically have a draft every time you need to have a military fight. He sends out messengers and says, everybody come meet me at this mountain and then we'll go to war. So Saul has gone to war against the Philistines. And before he sends them home, he says, we're going to take care of that little snot David. So before you guys go home, come with me. We're going to hunt him down and we're going to kill him because I have enough men. It doesn't matter if he's got 500 Rangers, I can, I can take him out. Does this make sense? This is the, the stage. That's what's going on. <clears throat> Excuse me. So Saul, Saul has kind of cornered uh, David in this region. And what is going on is uh, there's all these different caves in the side of these mountains. And in each one of these caves is a spring. And so you would go and you would harbor your sheep there or you would, you would uh, hang out there, whatever. It's in the desert, so being in the shade in the cave is a plus, right? If it's 120 degrees outside the cave... And it's only 100 inside the cave. It's like air conditioning. Right? So that's, a, that's what's going on is there's these caves. And so David is stuck in one of these caves, hiding from Saul and this mass army that's walking by. And Saul doesn't know which one he's in. He's just kind of going in, coming out, going in, kind of doing a, a whole search. Like we're looking for terrorists in Iraq. Okay, This is what's really going on. And so Saul is going in there. So, well, Saul finds himself needing to use the facilities. So Saul goes into one of these caves, uses the facilities, and, and David happens to be in the back of this cave with all of his men. David's sitting there, and so there you have this really awkward situation where who walks in is this guy who's trying to kill you, this guy who has Ill, uh, Ill intent for you. He's thrown spears at your head. He's confiscated your property. He has made your life miserable. And here he is in the cave with you, without his army. And so all David's guys are like, hey, go kill him. Do it. Do it now. Go. And David's, because mm. you know how it works with a, if you're in a dark room, it's a hide and go seek 101. If you're in the dark room and they stay, he's got a silhouette, he can't see into you, but you can see back into him, right? And so he's thinking about it. He's like, no, I can't, I, can't kill, I can't kill the Lord's anointed. I can't kill him. He's like, oh. So David creeps up, takes out a knife, and cuts the hem of his garment off while Saul is using the bathroom. And he kind of sneaks back. Saul goes on about his business. David waits until Saul's down the hill a little bit, and he comes out. Probably the guys come with him. He says, hey, missing something? That would have been like the weirdest experience ever. <laughs> like, that's worse than the toilet paper stuck to your tissue. That's just bad. Like, what in the world is going on around here? Somebody's cutting my clothes off while I'm going to the bathroom. Awkward. So he turns around. He's like, what, 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 what's going on? David says, hey, I had you. I had you. I didn't kill you. In the, in, in the ancient times, in real ancient times, if you cut the hem of a garment, that was like the ultimate, hey, you don't have ownership over me anymore. I'm done with you. I'm cut off from you. So this was a symbol of saying there was a purpose why he chose the hem of the garment. It was culturally in this area, I am done with you. We're done. Stop it type thing. 
Okay, this is, we're on a break, okay, to bring in Friends, all right? So, this is, those of you who watch Friends know exactly what I'm talking about. Those of you who don't are going, what is, what, what just happened? I don't know. We were on a break. Bring it back, Jared, bring it back. It's culturally the big cut off. It's a culturally the big slice there. And so, what he's saying is, I had you at my, your most vulnerable, Saul, King Saul, and I didn't take the shot. Even though you've been the person who's been throwing spears at me, trying to kill me, trying to take me down, stealing people from me, I didn't, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And there comes this really beautiful interchange between Saul and David, and, and Saul kind of recants his, his temper towards him and says, ah, you are you're a good man. <laughs> I'm sorry. And they kind of part ways for a while after that. And it's this, it's this really interesting thing. But in this story, there's all kinds of wonderful extrapolations we can, we can do about how our attitude with people uh, can change what's next for us. Because if David, think about David's circumstances. All of his guys, all these renegades. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how all the people without jobs basically coalesced around uh, David. All the guys who were in trouble, all the outlaws coalesced around David. So they're watching his move. David says, no, 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 no. If I kill him right now and become king, what's going to keep the guys behind me from stabbing me in the back? This is a astute political move. But he's also setting the example. He's setting the attitude. No, 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 no. I have a level of respect for this king and for God's anointed that I have to follow into that. And some of us... um, we need to start working on our attitudes with how we deal with the problem people in our lives. How does that work for us? See, David understands who he's dealing with. He understands his underlings. He understands his lieutenants to say, these guys are cold-blooded killers. I have trained them to do one thing and do one thing well, and that's kill Philistines. But with that comes some baggage. I've got to set the example that I'm better than that, and that they can be better than that. David understands who he's dealing with. He also understands who he's dealing with in Saul. (coughs) Excuse me. He understands that he's dealing with somebody who's a little crazy, who's a very unhealthy person. And some of us in our own lives, we try to deal with irrational people in a rational way. And we keep on getting burnt over and over and over again. We don't need any hands raised or fingers pointed right now, okay? But we try to like, treat someone like they, they are sensical when they are nonsensical. Maybe it's only times in which they're nonsensical, but there's these issues. And there's something that, that David does. He knows that a flip of a switch, Saul can flip on him. Saul has been like chilling to David's harp music. David's been playing the harp. Saul's... She's loving it, and all of a sudden he gets up, takes a spear, and chucks it at him. I don't know if he hit a wrong chord or what happened there. He got cranky and just whoop, split second. Some of us live in homes where it feels like that. Some of us deal with friends like that. Some of us deal with family members that's like that. Some of our coworkers maybe treat us like that. We have to understand who we are dealing with and make sure that our mind is right. Uh, with We have open eyes to who we are dealing with. He has a respect for Saul, that I think we need to have a respect for everyone like he does for Saul. There's a difference between trust and respect. And I was thinking about it last week. I was thinking about trust and respect. That's how I view maybe guns. 
I respect guns. I respect what they do. I respect their, their purpose. I, expect how they, I respect how they can put food on my table. I respect what, what they've done and how they protect and how they do all these different things. I don't trust guns. And I know that, you know, I just don't trust them. I don't like them. I don't have one in my house. I just don't, I don't trust it. I respect it, but I don't trust it. I don't trust myself around it. I don't, I don't, tr- don't want to, I don't need to be in a place where I have that much power and control over. I'm not trained adequately to do that. I, I don't trust that. Maybe if I went through courses and courses and courses of, of how to handle gun safety, maybe then I'd be like, okay, I could, I could do this. But just because I play video games for hours and hours doesn't make me a gun expert, all right? So I just, I just mm, I'm not going to do that. I'm not telling you you can't do it. I'm just saying I don't do it, okay? I respect them, but I don't trust them. And I think it's Saul, he's looking at it the same way. Because Saul's like, come on down here, let's party. You can give me my cloak back and I can sew it back on. Don't look silly out here. Come on. And David's like, no, 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 I'm going to respect you. But you stay down the hill. I'm going to stay here with a cave to my back with water supply and my boys ready to fight for me in a place of, of protection. And you just stay there. Some of us, when we enter into our, our conversations, we enter into our arguments. Maybe we don't even know it's going to be an argument. Well, we've put our place in a, a place of, of inequality. See, David enters into this conversation from a place of security. Do you catch that? He enters into this conversation with a, in a place of security. And some of us, we go in for our big, these big arguments. We go in for these uh, conversations that are very needed. And we've already put ourselves at a disadvantage. We've already put ourselves in a place where we're just going to get walked. We don't, we don't have our boys with us. We don't have a, the high ground. We don't have a water supply. We're just going in hoping for the best. And then when they flip the switch on us, we are going to get crushed. I'm not, I want to be clear. I'm not telling you to go into every conversation loaded for bear, ready to kill somebody. Just be ready to be in a place of security. Be a place like, I'm okay if this goes south. And sometimes we put ourselves in conversations where there, there's hardly any chance of it going well. And we wonder why, over and over again, why are, is our heart getting trampled? Why are we getting used? Why is, this, why is this turning out poorly? You've got to understand who you're dealing with. Sometimes you have to treat people out of this. Um, you have to set parameters around people and your conversations to help your attitude uh, deal with these what's next issues. Uh, just like the guys in the back of the cave, his friends, we're telling him to kill him. All this negativity. Some of you have, are surrounded by your best friends. They pour so much negativity into you, you can't help but be negative. Like it's just like a catching disease. It's more communicable than the flu. And I, to illustrate this, Jimmy and I did this for a season in our life. We were going through a pretty tough time. It was about, I don't know if you remember this, about three or four years ago. Uh, we, we would have these amazing, just Holy Spirit encounters at Fusion, which was our student ministry on Wednesday night. It would just be like, what just happened? I don't know what just happened. God showed up and changed. Like, it was just amazing. Kids getting off drugs, doing all these crazy things. And uh, just awesome stuff. And we get other, I'd go home, I'd be all mad. Just mad. Thursday morning, I'd wake up, I'd still be mad. Wednesday night, people's lives got changed. Their eternities changed. Thursday morning, I'm the crankiest person on the planet. What is going on? I realize it's Jimmy's fault. 
I could stop right then, but, uh, but after, after fusion, we would talk about something about, oh, that was good, that was good, that was good. We'd be out in the parking lot freezing. We had a perfectly good warm outback we could be in, but we'd be out in the parking lot. Um, and we'd be talking, and all of a sudden, something negative would start, and then something else negative would start. Because we had, we had stuff we could complain about. We really did. If, it'd, be, it'd be 10, 30, 11 o'clock. We'd just talk for two and a half hours, three hours about how we were cranky about something. I go home. I want to kick the dog. Joy did not do anything wrong, I promise. We had a life altered. We had amazing experiences. God was changing people's lives, and we're going home mad, Jimmy. I finally realized this after about a month or so. What is going on? I said, all right, Jimmy, we can complain. I'm setting a timer. We got 10 minutes. There's 10 minutes. We got 10 minutes to complain, and then after that, it's all positive again. I think I was in mid-sentence. I was like, okay, we're done. We stopped. We moved. And guess what? My attitude got better. You need a place to vent. You need safe people you can talk to. But you also have to set limits on that. Because the two and a half hours of complaining is two hours and 20 minutes too long. Right? You have air your grievance. You don't have to beat that dead horse over and over and over and over and over again. I'll tell you, it was monopolizing my next day, my day off. My whole day off spent talking about how cranky I am about what, hap- what didn't happen the night before. Come on. Some of us are stuck in that lifestyle. Luckily, Jimmy was having the same thought, and he was like, oh, wait a minute, we got we to change this. And I had a person in my life who could, who could change that with me. Some of us, the people in our lives that are doing those negativity things, you say, hey, we got to stop talking negatively. And they're like, uh, what are you talking about? This is me. This is how I talk. Something in that equation has to change. Either the process of talking negatively or the people that are talking negatively have to change. You've got to change the equation if you want to get a different outcome. I don't know much about math, but I'm pretty sure that one's right. <laughs> two plus two is going to be four for a long time. David takes this opportunity for healthy restoration. He takes the opportunity for healthy restoration. I love it. I love that he takes this opportunity. He could have killed him. He could have destroyed him. And instead of leveraging the power over Saul he has, he tries to restore the situation and restore the relationship. This is an example in our own relationships, in our own lives, that I hope we can take, is we need to take the opportunities for restoration when we can. He has the opportunity to hurt and crush and cut down, and yet he restores. Think about this. This is the biggest enemy he can face. Saul was a bigger threat than Goliath. Think about that. The giant went down easier than this pain in the rear king. And he takes the opportunity for restoration. We got to take the opportunity for restoration in these relationships. A couple of things he, we've already talked about a little bit, but he does this from a position of safety. He's okay if the restoration, if Saul's still mad and start cranky and starts wanting to throw things at him, David, all he has to do is take a step back into the cave and I can hang out here for a long time. We have to be emotionally healthy enough to say, it's okay if you don't receive the restoration. I just want to be in a place where I'm offering the restoration. Does that make sense? Do you hear me on that? David does it. It's, it's beautiful. I, I just... Very interesting to me. 
the restoration is, is beautiful in, in verse 16. Because he does this from, from that position of safety of verse 15. He says, may the Lord therefore judge which of us is right and punish the guilty one. He is my advocate and he will rescue me from your power. And when David had finished speaking, Saul called back, is that really you, David? He began to cry. You're a better man than me for you have repaid my good for evil. And you've been amazingly kind to me today. And the Lord put me in a place where you could have killed me. You didn't do it. Who else would let his enemy get away with it? He had him in his power. May the Lord reward you well for your kindness you have shown me today. Like, he realizes it. Now, this is a, a, a great ending to the story. I wish I could say Saul. Saul's like, oh, David, you're fine. We got a whole rest of the book of crazy stuff going to happen. But it was a step. And it was worth taking. David shows humility in this restoration. He shows humility of saying, you know what? The easy road would have been to go ahead and kill you. But he humbles himself. He says, I can't mess with God's anointed. I can't kill God's anointed. God has a bigger plan for this. David is a man of war, but he has the limits. He says, no, 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 no. This is not for me to do. This is not for me to act on. I have to be humble in this. It comes back to attitude. How do we position ourselves to be used by God in our relationships? How are we positioned for what's next in relationships with our attitude? The New Testament talks a lot about this as well. Paul is the writer of most of the letters in the back of the Bible. Talks about your attitude should be the same of that as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of the servant, being made in human likeness. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So what is that attitude? What does that look like for us? It centers on a couple ideas. Pleasing God isn't about self-promotion, but self-abandonment. We live in a world where self-promotion is the norm, is the way of the day, is the way of acting. Self-promote, you got to sell yourself in about every situation that you're at. But pleasing God is not about self-promotion, but self-abandonment. When you think about that more, it's going back to this negative thought process or whatnot. It's how you think is how you become or what you become. How you think determines what you become. How you think determines what you become. Well, Jared, I want to be more like Christ. How do I do that? You got to get into, just read, start reading the Gospels. We've been talking about reading the Bible a lot in this series. Getting into the Gospels. How does Jesus think? I don't know. Read the Gospels. Read the Sermon on the Mount. How does Jesus' filter work? How does he perceive the world? How does he interact with people? Read the Gospels. If we want to have the very mind of Christ, we've got to know his mind, right? How I figure out how my wife operates is I ask her questions. I can do a lot of observing. I can watch and, and look. But until I start really kind of digesting the answers to her questions and, uh, and to the questions I ask her, do I start to figure out how she operates and how this all works? The same goes for our kids. If you have kids, you know that they change at like every day. 
And so you have to ask, how does this work? How does, what's going on here? And ask these questions. What, what are you feeling about that? Bowen all of a sudden changed from playing with certain toys to a whole different ones. Well, what happened? Did something change? Did you like those toys anymore? What's going on? Because I know those shifts are going to happen. They happen in our lives all the time. So things are just going to shift and change. And we have to know the person well enough so that we can act on it. But how we think determines what you become. For what's next when it happens. My mom is in here today. When I was talking to Bowen last night, Bowen was watching skiing videos on Jimmy's phone. There were some people in wheelchairs skiing. I don't really know how good of an idea that is. But uh, (laughs) it was pretty cool. And so Bowen naturally started asking questions about wheelchairs. And I said, Bowen, did you know when I was your age, grandma was in a wheelchair all the time? Just kind of blew his mind. It kind of blew my mind as I started thinking about it. That's the size I was when that was going on. That mom didn't think she was, the doctor said, you're never going to walk again. You're going to lose a flag, blah, blah, blah. And uh, mom tells it way better than, of course, I'm going to. But she tells a story of she's sitting in this, I remember that blue, it was a blue electric chair that helped her get up. And I'd play in it for hours. I learned to read with you having a heart catheter in that blue chair sitting there next to you at midnight when you had to get up and do the heart thing. I, that's what I did. It was a norm. But she, she couldn't get up in that. But there was, there was this moment at the farm where mom had to realize, you know what, God, I'm, I'm not going to wallow in this anymore. Every day I get up, I'm going to work for you. If you give me the strength to get up in the morning, I'm going to work for you. And there's an attitude shift. It was a, it was a flipping of the switch. From, from that moment on, things changed for her. God has granted her not total healing, but granted her the healing to get through days. Granted her, she's one of the first seven people to get hand transplant, all the, the joints uh, transplanted in her, arm, in her hand. Things start, okay, I can move my hand a little bit better now. All right, I can do that. She just had, she's robo-mom now. She's got all kinds of stuff going on. But did you guys notice she walked in today? Mm-hmm. It's an attitude shift. How you think determines what you become. It'd be very easy for mom in this cold weather to go, I ain't getting out of bed, put my heating blanket on, I ain't moving, come get me in the spring. How you think determines what you become. If you think like Jesus thought, you'll live like Jesus lived. If you think like Jesus thought, you'll live like Jesus lived. We can't, I can't overestimate this. I can't oversay it. If we do not know how Jesus thought, we can't hope for our lives to start changing in a better fashion towards Jesus. We have got to study the scripture. What did he actually say? What does he expect out of me? What does he want? We have it written down. It's there. In four different books. Read it. Know it. It'll change your life. The major determining things that Paul, when Paul's studying Jesus and he extrapolates from this, he says, do nothing out of, how you get the attitude of Christ is this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Oh, man. Nothing out of selfish ambition? Nothing. But, 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 But do nothing out of selfish ambition. It's the attitude that'll prepare us for what's next. How we do that 
looks in our church, and again, how that looks in our, in our lives is one of these major shifts. When I was doing a leadership institute with, our, with students in, in Georgia, we called it LEAP. And uh, you could see these kids come in, and they had a huge, we were a church plant, and so we had all these responsibilities. Everything had to be set up and tear down every week. All the cords, we had all these crazy intelligent lights and all these things. Uh, just imagine all this cleaned up every week and then set back up. Cleaned up, set back up, and multiplied by five. Okay, so we, uh, we, we did that over and over and over and over again. So I had these 30 students who signed up, willingly signed up to be a part of that. They also got conferences and, and some trips throughout the year that was a part of that. But it was really cool to see the kids who, about Christmas time, they caught this. They caught this, this, this moment. Serving is not what I do. A servant is who I am. And when that's caught, everything changed. Can you imagine have a... Four- those of you who have teenagers, and I'm on them every week to memorize scripture, to come, and to, uh, to set up and roll cords and clean toilets and change toilet paper out and do all the nasty things that need to be done to make a church work. Every week, I got, I got 30 to 40 kids coming to do this stuff. All of a sudden, their mind shifts, not of it's an obligation, I have to go do it. To a servant is who I am. When that would happen, you could see these kids just flower, blow up, and leadership just oozed out of them. I got faces playing in my head right now of kids that you could see it happen. In this church right now, if we get people who say, serving is not what I do, a servant is who I am, you can see a shift and a turn and just an explosion of the potential of who you are. It's an attitudinal shift that changes everything. Serving is not what I do. A servant is who I am. As we close today, we're going to take communion. And here at at Shorewood, we practice open communion. If you're a believer in Christ Jesus, you are more than uh, welcome to take communion with us. Uh, We will take communion today by coming down this aisle and exiting this one. So just kind of make a loop for me, please. Um, Or we'll have a big traffic jam. Um, but we'll do it, and you can take communion on your own as the band plays after you've received it. Uh, I will not uh, tell you when to take the communion uh, throughout the song that's being played, okay? But as we take communion today, as we take these elements, they talk, they're all about Christ's sacrifice, his blood, his body broken and poured out for us, which is the very example of his attitude, of that I'm doing everything so people can have life and have it full. I'm doing all this sacrifice. I'm sacrificing myself. This is Jesus talking so that these people can have eternal life. As we take these elements, I want to think about how is my attitude? Is it selfish? Is it self-absorbed? Is it all about vain conceit? Is it all about what I want, about what I do, about, about me? Or does it have humility? Is it about building others up? If I was in David's spot, what would my reaction be if I saw my enemy standing there five feet away from me in a place of vulnerability? Do I take the knife and try to restore a relationship or do I end the relationship? And some of us, as we look at what's next, we, we might be scared to death of what's next. We might be confused about what's next. Most of the things about what's next are just circumstances. They're they're extras. But until we get this attitude right, until we get our heart right and our head right, 
We can't, we can't enter into what's next for us. We don't know if it's going to be health issues that comes up, job issues that come up, family issues that come up. But if our attitude's right, those things are all just secondary. As I look around this church, we've got, got a baby here for the first time. That's a huge what's next, right? Every day, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Was that a hiccup? Do I need to go to the hospital? Right? What's next for them? Some of us are, are looking, some of you are looking at retiring and going, what's next? Some of you are looking for new jobs going, what, what, what's next in that? How do we have the mind of Christ in that? How do we have the mind of Christ as we parent? How do, how do we have the mind of Christ as we, we develop our marriages? How do we have the mind of Christ as we do our jobs, as we love our grandkids? We're, serving is not what we do. A servant is who I am. It's who I want to become. So this morning as you take the elements, let's think about, God, how is my attitude? How is it? How do I, how do I correct it? Am I the person in the negativity that's bringing everybody around me down? God, will you show me a muzzle so I can just quit talking? Will you change my heart so I can see the good in people and the good in situations? Will you help me with my relationships so I can do the best I possibly can in these? As you take these elements, think about the sacrifice that God said, listen, I see more in you than you can ever know. I have a hope and a future for you. There's more for you. There's better for you. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today and thank you for this morning. Thank you for these people. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this opportunity to come and worship you. And God, we ask you for life change in our hearts, that we can get our attitudes right, that we can put down the negativity, we can put down the complaining, we can just step into what you have for us, that we can shift our attitude, that if you give me today, I'll do the best I can with it. God, we ask you for your touch. We ask you for your guidance. We thank you for your redemption. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.